Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Knavesmire Vampires by Ian Gordon. One. Bloodsuckers? came the broad tones of Norman Kane in response to his caller's query. What's going on over there, anyway? The man with the prosthetic arms was referring to a pair of killings that had recently occurred within the city of York. His caller and friend, the renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen, was assisting the police, in an unofficial capacity, with the more outré aspects of the case. "'It's uncanny, Norman,' the P.I. returned. "'Victims attacked in the wee hours, bodies drained of blood,' Puncture marks here and there. They're calling the culprit the Knavesmire Vampire. Knavesmire? queried Kane. It's an open area south of the city walls. Marshland, mainly. Home to the racecourse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And there are custom spots by the upright piano in Kane's bookshop on Tibb Street, Manchester. The proprietor, following a protracted, uncharacteristic search— had extracted a dusty paperback from a wall of books prior to sitting. The book, in pursuit of the vital essence, was a shabby affair. The title printed on the soft cover was mostly illegible. It was only when Kane volunteered the name of the book that Van Melsen was able to fill in the blanks. Awkwardly, Kane began sifting through its pages with his clumsy, false appendages. "'Ah!' he blurted. "'Here we are.' The Lancastrian proceeded to read aloud the numerous definitions written there, all of which suggested that the so-called Knavesmire Vampire was indeed likely to be precisely what the name implied. Nocturnally active, driven by the need to consume human blood, possessing unusually large canines capable of puncturing human flesh. "'The trouble is,' Van Melsen began, "'I don't think we're dealing with a corporeal entity.' "'How's that, then?' A couple of witnesses have come forward, each claiming to have seen a dark figure on the Knavesmire in the vicinity of where a body was later found. The first of these, a man out with his collie on the little Knavesmire, described the thing as murky and shapeless. The second observer, a jogger on her nightly circuit of Knavesmire Road, said she'd seen a shadow dart across the street, the source of which never materialised. Kane hesitated— before once again leafing through the tattered paperback in quest of something befitting the accounts of the witnesses. After several moments of fruitless searching, the Lancastrian said, "'Nothing on shadow vampires in here, Peter.' "'Shadow vampires?' came Van Melsen's reply. "'Aye,' said Kane, his eyes dancing from bookshelf to bookshelf distractedly. "'I've got a book on the subject somewhere.' The paranormal investigator lit a cigarette. With the exhalation of a lungful of smoke, he asked, "'Is there anything you can tell me off the top of your head?' Kane mused for a few moments, a plastic fist stroking his bristly chin. The man was out of sorts, his friend thought. "'Beware the slain anthropophagus,' the Lancastrian quoted from memory, "'or it will inevitably return.' "'A cannibal?' Van Melsen delved. "'No ordinary cannibal, Peter. This sort is—' dead, but it keeps coming back. And these things are— the P.I. paused for emphasis. Shadow vampires? You're going to have to leave it with me, old friend. 
I've got some ferreting to do. Again, his eyes flew to the numerous bookshelves. Not to worry, Norman. I've a train to catch shortly. Van Melsen knew his friend well. In Kane's world, everything had its place—books, artifacts, particularly the exotic items stored below in the private collection. But it was clear, judging by the look of befuddlement on his dumpy face, that he was having some difficulty locating certain things. Why was that? Just then, the door to Kane's rare books gently opened, and in stepped a stranger—a stranger to the P.I., at least. Conspicuous, in a striking black and yellow shirt-dress, was a young lady with a mass of luxurious, jet-black, kinky hair atop her head. Large brown eyes, framed by scarlet-rimmed circular glasses, seized Van Melsen, rendering him momentarily inert. "'Wax!' Kane blurted, immediately approaching the young lady. "'I can't find anything in here!' The young lady rolled her eyes playfully, smiling at the P.I. as Kane berated her. Puffing on the remnants of his tab by the piano, Van Melsen grinned. Extinguishing the cigarette, he climbed to his feet and approached the pair. "'And this is?' he probed, distracting Kane from his fruitless grilling. "'Wax,' the Lancastrian offered. "'My new assistant.' The young lady smiled again, shaking the skeletal hand the P.I. extended. "'Peter,' he said, in response to which Wax simply nodded. "'As I was saying, Peter,' Kane blurted, "'you'd better leave it with me. Wax and I have some reshuffling to do.' The young lady, still smiling, waved farewell to the P.I., then disappeared into the back of the shop. Van Melsen focused on his friend. "'Assistant?' he asked, eyeballing his friend quizzically. "'You know where it is, old friend,' Kane said. "'We all need a helping hand from time to time. Me more than most,' <laughs> he added, drawing his friend's attention to his plastic arms. Nodding, Van Melsen moved towards the door. "'I'm staying in the city.' he said, referring to York. "'Call me at the Golden Fleece.' "'Will do,' the Lancastrian confirmed, then shuffled off after his new assistant. Stepping out into the chill of March, Van Melsen popped the collar of his dark brown overcoat. He did so, not only to protect himself from the biting cold, but also to shield the sensitive flesh of his neck from would-be bloodsuckers. Shadow vampires, he thought eyeballing the dark shapes trailing behind the late afternoon passers-by on Tip Street. They're everywhere. 2. Back in the cramped confines of his room at the Golden Fleece, Van Melsen paced back and forth. His imagination was getting the better of him. Wherever he looked, he saw the silhouettes of scheming shadow vampires— He'd seen them on the platform at Victoria Station in Manchester. They'd occupied the empty seats of the train as it traversed the Pennines. There were suggestions of them atop York City walls. But he wasn't a fool. The shadows he'd scrutinized were simply that—shadows. The creatures Kane had mentioned were something else entirely. The investigator approached the panelled window, which offered a view of the thoroughfare pavement and the south end of the shambles. It was a little after ten p.m., Sunday, and as such the streets were relatively quiet. Feeling the need for air, Van Melsen donned his coat and slipped out into the night. It wasn't unusual for the investigator to feel out of sorts in the city, 
But, having spent several lengthy periods in York in recent years, he and the ancient metropolis had developed a sort of rapport. He met the used bridge as one might meet a friend, climbed Micklegate with what might have passed for a smile on his face, and on he went in a southerly direction towards the mount, unconsciously drawn to the scene of the recent murders, the Knavesmire. Accessing the little Knavesmire by way of Albemarle Road, the investigator made his way towards the spot upon which the student, Philip David Carrington, had met his end on March 2nd, just two weeks earlier. The Little Knavesmire, as the name suggests, is a small green area in York's south bank, occupying the northeast portion of the Knavesmire, and separated from the grasslands proper by Knavesmire Road. It's a public space, overlooked on all sides, but after dark, other than the occasional dog-walker or loitering teenager, the little Knavesmire can seem a very barren place indeed. The circumstances surrounding Carrington's presence on the field that fateful evening weren't fully understood. As far as the young student's parents were concerned, Philip was supposed to be spending the night in the city. A room above a pub on Cromwell Road had been booked in his name. However, the pub in question was within the city walls— making Carrington's decision to head south of the walls after leaving his friends at approximately 11 p.m. all the more curious. Moreover, the landlord at the Iron Will stated that the young student failed to check in. Carrington's body was spotted by a dog-walker a little after 6 a.m. the following morning. The young student, lying by the hospital field allotments at the north end of the little Knavesmire, was flat on his back, his bloodshot eyes gazing into space. The coroner later deduced time of death as somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m., which corresponded with the report of the man walking his collie at 12.30 a.m., who said he saw something murky and shapeless fleeing the little Knavesmire in the direction of Tadcaster Road. Van Melson, once again conscious of the vast swathe of shadow enveloping him there on the dark field, gazed at the spot by the hospital field allotments momentarily, before continuing towards Knavesmire Road. Crossing the empty street, he hopped the small wooden fence separating the grasslands from the road, and approached a bald patch of grass just visible under the glow of a nearby street lamp. This was the spot upon which the primary school teacher, Janet Rachel Constance, had expired, much after the fashion of the student Carrington. Friends and family members of Constance suggested that she wasn't one to head out after dark. She was the quiet type, the sort who enjoyed nothing more than repetitive evenings in front of the television, with her three cats, Dolly, Molly, and Folly. For her to end up on the Knavesmire in the middle of the night, some three miles from her home in Fulford, was highly unusual indeed. Regardless, there she was, dead, discovered a little after 7 a.m. Sunday, March 11th. Like Carrington, she'd been flat on her back, gazing at the sky. And again, the coroner, in her report, put Constance's death at somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m., again correlating with the testimony of Lisa Ramsbottom, the night jogger who saw a shadow dart across Knavesmire Road at approximately 12.30 a.m. Cautiously, and through eyes that had gazed upon a thousand horrors over the years, Van Melson studied the vast, open gloom surrounding him. He was on the lookout for movement, 
the presence of peckish parasites, the sauntering of sentient shapes, but he felt sure that he was quite alone. Absorbing the night-song of distant traffic met by the occasional hooting of a lone owl, he lit a cigarette and toked deeply. That there was a great deal of work to be done, the investigator was certain. His contact at the local constabulary, Detective Chief Inspector Mark Brent, who had called upon Van Melsen's services more than once before, had enlisted the assistance of the investigator in order to dispel rumours circulating in certain circles, rumours that the recent deaths were the result of a rampant vampire's bloodlust. It's worth stating that D.C.I. Brent would never admit to believing in such nonsense. He was a police officer with a reputation to maintain, but he was shrewd enough never to exclude the possibility that certain crazed individuals might just believe themselves to be creatures of the night, members of the recently resurrected, and such like. Hiring the well-known paranormal investigator was simply a means by which to weed out the nut-jars. With a heavy heart, Van Melsen withdrew from the Knavesmire, feeling a great deal of sadness for both the victims of whatever it was that was out there, and their friends and families. The investigator's family, what remained of it, was far away, impossibly far, it felt to him at times, and it was that distance that allowed him to empathize with the plights of others. That, above all else, was what kept him rooted to the ground. To lose that connection would be, as far as he was concerned, to become one of the others, the creatures of the night he spent his time hunting. Van Melsen made his way back to the Golden Fleece in a timely fashion. As he ducked into the entranceway, a glance to his right revealed something, a shape of some sort, disappearing into the gloom of the snickleway known as Lady Peckett's Yard. Was it another midnight stroller, a local taking a shortcut to Fosgate, or was it something— much more nefarious, something murky and indistinct, something potentially responsible for the grisly deaths of a young student and a primary school teacher. Tired, and not in the least bit interested in coming face to face with the object of his pursuit at such an early stage in the game, the P.I. stepped into the pub, and, as the landlady had requested, locked the heavy wooden door behind him. Whether or not the incorporeal thing outside would be impeded by an ordinary wooden door, was a point Van Melsen mused over for several minutes. Reaching his room, he proceeded to adorn both the door and the window overlooking the shambles with a number of special homemade wreaths he referred to as allium chains. The P.I. chuckled to himself as he finished attaching the pungent garlands. "'Oh, I do love me a bit of garlic,' he muttered. Having enjoyed an uninterrupted sleep, in spite of his concerns regarding the thing that may or may not have ducked into Lady Peckett's yard the night before, Van Melsen awoke a little after 7.30 a.m., completely refreshed. The P.I. wasn't the type to aim for the requisite eight hours of slumber. He was the kind of individual who valued quality over quantity. Dreamless nights were of major concern, indicative of fidgety slumbers spent tossing and turning. To have dreamt of anything, really, though he had a preference for dreams of home, that place that seemed so impossibly distant, was an indication of a night well rested. And dreamt Van Melsen had. It was a recurring dream, one he'd had many times before, 
a dream as old as the man himself, which, as anyone gazing upon the hard face of the gaunt investigator might concur, was rather difficult to determine. In the dream, Van Melsen would find himself atop a lofty cliff within an enormous underground cavern. Far below him, above a huge lake, would be drifting a vast, slow-moving airship, a giant zeppelin, the likes of which only a fantastic mind could conjure up. He'd stand there for a long time, ages it felt to him, gazing at the interminably slow airship below, wondering who its occupants might be, where it was going, and how it was that it had come to be contained within the confines of a gigantic subterranean grotto. As the dream progressed, the presence of someone approaching to his rear would instill a tremendous sense of fear, and, almost involuntarily, the P.I. would promptly leap from the cliff, during the descent from which the dream would fade to black. What the dream meant, Van Melsen hadn't a clue. Dream interpretation was a little beyond him, despite the fact that his chosen profession often involved encounters with those who relied on such to provide information. The investigator pushed thoughts of his slumbers to the back of his mind, and sought the recuperative effects of a cold shower. Van Melsen's morning routine, which might have included a close shave, the ironing of his trousers, the buffing of his winkle-pickers, was disturbed by a telephone call. The caller was his contact at the police, DCI Mark Brent. Peter? came the voice of Brent. There's been another. The P.I. paused, before asking, Where? Do you know the Knavesmire Lodge on Tadcaster Road? Yes, the P.I. confirmed, knowing that the property in question was visible from the spot upon which the body of the primary school teacher Janet Rachel Constance had been found. How soon can you get here? I'm on my way. With those words, Van Melsen threw himself together, and promptly left the relative safety and comfort of the Golden Fleece behind. As the cool air met the taut flesh of his face, he considered the very real possibility that he may be in need of accommodation a little closer to the Knavesmire Lodge. 3. The Knavesmire Lodge, a Georgian Grade II listed building overlooking the northern portion of the Knavesmire Grasslands, was, as described by Nigel Brackett, Asset and Property Management, York City Council, a little worse for wear when Agatha and David Winston acquired it in the latter months of 2017. "'It's been unoccupied for over forty years,' said Brackett, during their initial conversation on the subject. "'Not afraid of ghosts, I hope?' "'Absolutely not!' Agatha had responded, laughing. "'They'll flee at the first sight of me!' David had laughed too, though lacking the conviction and gusto his wife provided on behalf of the pair. He'd added, as jovially as his quiet demeanour allowed, "'Ghosts? Really?' To which Brackett, a giant of a Yorkshireman, possessed of the most ridiculous comb-over seen this side of Scarborough's annual toupee convention, had answered, "'Keen to find out?' The big man had laughed, but David, his plush feathers ruffled, merely smirked emptily. Agatha, desperate to acquire a piece of York's history at a steal, had insisted that the lodge's past was of little to no importance, and that what was important was the restoration of a very centrally located business opportunity close to the racecourse. The deal had gone through without much ado, 
and, shortly afterwards, in the third week of October, the renovation of the seven-bedroom property had begun. After several months of intensive labour, much of which had been funded by a sizable inheritance following the passing of David Winston's elderly mother, the Knavesmire Lodge welcomed its first guests on the afternoon of Valentine's Day, 2018. Visitors had booked months in advance, and, according to Agatha, when questioned by DCI Brent the morning of March 19th, the seven guest rooms were fully booked through to September. When Van Melson arrived later that same morning, having stealthily slipped by the inquisitive throng gathered on Tadcaster Road, he took a moment to explore the south-facing grounds at the front of the lodge. Under the bare willows overhanging the gravel driveway, a dozen or so police officers formed a steady flow of traffic between the scene of the crime and the road. The P.I. kept well out of their way as he approached the lodge. The striking façade of the listed building, with its numerous sash windows and gloriously refurbished ruby-red door below an immaculate cast-stone portico, was inviting in the extreme. One need only pass it on the street to succumb to its irresistible lure. Astride the portico, Van Melsen noticed further windows at basement level, windows notable in that they didn't appear to be up to the standard of the rest of the property. Shabby and moss-riddled, they were. Nearing the portico itself, Van Melsen's gaze was drawn to the elaborate fanlight above the door, forming part of which were the words, Knavesmire Lodge. All this he saw, and carefully absorbed, irrespective of the comings and goings of the sizable task force, which was now accompanied by a number of paramedics and the coroner. DCI Brent met Van Melsen by the portico, where he offered a brief overview, the room in which the body had been found, the details pertaining to the state of the body, who had discovered the body, namely Mr. Winston, the proprietor, and a dash of general information touching on the lodge's recent renovation. Brent had then given the signal for the investigator to go about his routine, to look for evidence concerning anything, and the DCI always struggled saying the word aloud, supernatural. As was usually the case when Van Melsen was invited to a murder scene, the overwhelming levels of activity allowed him to conduct his affairs largely unnoticed, which, as far as Brent was concerned, was a blessing. Entering the lodge, whilst simultaneously avoiding a shoulder barge from an impatient young police officer, Van Melsen's gaze immediately fell upon the tired and broken countenances of both Agatha and David Winston. By the reception desk, a rather beautiful mahogany affair, exquisitely polished, the ailing couple were sitting patiently, waiting, minding their own business, so to speak, as the members of the task force went about their duties. Spotting an opportunity to acquire some information, the gaunt figure in the dark brown overcoat approached the downcast pair and opened his mouth. "'Good morning,' he began, attempting a smile, never a trivial feat. "'Are you the proprietors?' "'Yes,' answered Agatha, gloomily. "'And you are?' "'Peter Van Melsen,' he said. "'I'm a private consultant, working with the police.' Brent insisted that Van Melsen be classed as a private consultant when involved with the police. The notion of the press catching wind of a paranormal investigator in their midst was almost too much for him to bear. Oh, came the muted tones of Mrs. Winston. 
Directing the question at Mr. Winston, the P.I. asked, "'I believe it was yourself who found the body?' David, a short, middle-aged gentleman with a stack of unkempt, bright white hair atop his head, managed a nod. "'What can you tell me about it?' This question visibly riled the towering Mrs. Winston. "'We've been through this a dozen times already.' Patiently, and in the softest tone of voice he could muster, the investigator said, I know, and I apologize, but I am here in a slightly different capacity. My objectives are quite dissimilar to those of my—and he grappled for the word—colleagues. Something in the vocal quality of the gaunt fellow transfixed Mrs. Winston, who, quite uncharacteristically, yielded to him. I'm sorry, she said, her broad accent untamed. It's just that we put everything we had into this place. Everything. We've only been open a month. A bloody month. And what happens? A fella turns up dead upstairs. And not just dead either. Drained of blood. Van Melsen was about to interject, but Agatha, a boisterous lady some ten years David's junior, was just getting started. You know what that means, don't you, Mr. Molson? Actually, it's Van Melsen. It means that someone was in here last night. The same someone who's been out there on the fields, preying on those folks in the night. He's been in here, feeding on our guests. I mean, Mr. Molson, he could have very well sneaked into my room, she said, emphasising the word, while simultaneously revealing a little something about the nature of her relationship with Mr. Winston. Could have been me that he fed on. Me! He? Van Melsen asked for clarification. Well, they're saying it's he, ain't they? Van Melsen shrugged. I'm not sure what they're saying, Mrs. Winston. As far as I'm aware, nothing is yet known with regards to the assailant. Mrs. Winston let out an exasperated sigh, then turned to her diminutive spouse. Go on, then, she barked. Tell Mr. Molson what you told me. Van Melsen raised his eyebrows at this third instance of mispronunciation, but decided to let it go unchecked. David Winston, with some effort, finally agreed to empty his lungs on the subject. Well, he began, involuntarily clutching at his right earlobe as he did so, I was up just after six to start preparation for breakfast. We were fully booked, five couples and two singles, so I wanted to get started nice and early-like. The little man paused and took a deep breath. Agatha and me sleep here on the ground floor. The guest bedrooms are on the first and second floors. Rooms one through four on the first floor, rooms five through seven on the second. On my way past the stairs, though, and Mr. Winston motioned towards the staircase, located to the left of the reception desk, I noticed some marks on the steps, dark marks like footsteps, barely visible, really, and so, being of a nosy mentality, I, I followed them. Mrs. Winston interrupted her husband. Well, you never know, do you, Mr. Molson? You see footsteps on the stairs, you've got to check them out, haven't you? I mean, somebody could have walked in off the street looking for a place to crash for the night. It seems that somebody did wander in off the street, Van Melsen remarked. Anyway, David continued, before his wife could speak again, I followed them, sporadic though they were, and before I knew it found myself standing at the door of room number two. And that's on the first floor? the investigator asked. That's right. David confirmed. It seemed to me that the footsteps led away from the room, which I found more than a little odd. 
If the guest had walked something in from outside, they'd have trailed it in both directions, surely. Van Melsen nodded, gesturing for the nervous proprietor to continue. Well, the whole thing just felt off, if you get my meaning. So I knocked on the door. Mr. Winston paused for effect. No answer. So I knocked again. Again he paused, only to be chastised by Mrs. Winston for pussyfooting. Okay, he yielded, brushing her heavy hands away. After the third knock, I tried the door handle. The door was open, so I went inside, and— The short man trailed off. It's okay. Take your time, Van Melsen encouraged. I went inside, and saw there on the bed— it's a big one in there, king size it is. I saw Mr. Powell sprawled out on his back. On top of the covers he was, in a right state. And though there wasn't a drop of blood to be seen, I knew straight away that the fellow was dead. His eyes, you see, wide open they were, stirring at the ceiling. I can't get the image out of my head. And the footprints? the investigator asked. Gone, Mr. Winston stated. Just gone. It's got me wondering if I saw anything at all. Like, something was drawing me to the room. Do you know what I mean? Van Melsen acknowledged the proprietor's vague explanation with a contraction of the eyelids and a slow nod of the head. What do you make of it, Mr. Molson? Mrs. Winston asked, pleadingly. The investigator shook his head. I can't say at this stage, Mrs. Winston. I'll need to make a detailed assessment of both the scene and the lodge in general, before I can conjure up any sort of hypothesis. To this, both halves of the Winston unit heaved out exasperated sighs, and, in short succession, much like characters in a video game, resumed their silent ruminations, their bodies inanimate. Van Melsen took a moment to contemplate the chain of events as related to him by Mr. Winston. Despite informing the Winstons of his inability to form a hypothesis at this stage, his keen sense of the supernatural was drawing him in a very particular direction. Outside, standing by the portico, the P.I. had noted, with a special interest, the poor state of the basement windows. Those dark, mouldy, sunken panes in the shadow of the shiny, polished exterior. And now that he was on the inside of the lodge— he found himself gazing in the direction of the stairs, specifically the flight leading down to the basement, the top of which was cordoned off. "'What's down there?' Van Melsen asked the Winstons, pointing a bony, nimble index finger in the direction of the staff-only barrier. "'The basement,' answered Mrs. Winston. "'It's still—or was, at least—on our to-do list.' "'Anything unusual down there?' The large woman frowned, saying, "'Not really. There's not a great deal down there, to be honest. The old boiler room, a couple of storage rooms, that's your lot, really.' Again, Van Melsen offered a slow nod in acknowledgement. "'Mind if I take a look?' he asked. "'I doubt you need my permission, Mr. Molson.' The P.I. shuddered once again, biting his tongue. "'Thank you,' he managed, and strolled away towards the stairs." After several moments spent fumbling about in the dark, Van Melsen located a pull-cord at the bottom of the steep stairs. Yanking it, the cramped and unwelcoming space about him was dimly illuminated by a low-voltage, 
exposed bulbs suspended from a dangerous-looking frayed cable. The action of pulling the cord set the bulbs swinging back and forth, allowing for erratic glimpses into the depths of a murky corridor beyond, host to several doors. The investigator followed the corridor, inspecting the doors respectively. There were four entrances in total, one of which lacked a door entirely, where beyond a gloomy space filled with dusty antiquated furniture sprawled out into further darkness. One of the remaining three, though, caught his eye immediately. The door in question, the second on his left as he moved along the corridor, was unlike the others, in that a symbol had been etched into the hoary timber. Other eyes might have missed it, or passed it off as merely a series of insignificant scratches, but Van Melsen saw it clearly. The symbol comprised three vertical lines, just like the Roman numeral three, enclosed in a triple-lined circle. It appeared to the P.I. that the symbol had been there for some time. The tattered door was ajar. Pushing it open, Van Melsen immediately saw that the room into which the door led was one of the spaces behind the murky windows he had observed from the front of the property. The grimy windows did a poor job of allowing light to spill into the room, but it was quickly apparent to the investigator that the space was empty. Judging by the footprints and the sooty ground beneath his feet, it was evident that the new owners of the Knavesmire Lodge had at the very least visited the basement rooms, or had something else been in the room recently, something that had tread its tracks upon the stairs and throughout the corridors in quest of the occupant of guest room two. The investigator made a mental note to return to the room in due course. There was something about the ominous chamber that had piqued his interest, and if the symbol on the door was anything to go by, the room was significant in a way he wasn't yet quite able to define. Had he seen the symbol before? And what of that odour, the faint odour of rotten eggs? Emerging from the basement, Van Melsen came face to face with D.C.I. Brent. Pulling the P.I. to one side, the officer asked in hushed tones, "'What are your impressions, Peter?' "'I'm not sure,' Van Melsen said. "'When can I see the crime scene?' "'They're bringing the body out now,' Brent affirmed, as presently two men appeared at the top of the stairs, carrying a stretcher. The investigator held his breath a moment, his eyes following the body-bag as it was carried out into the light of day. The victim's a man by the name of Martin Powell, Brent announced. He's a 45-year-old insurance salesman from Leeds, here in York on a city break. Checked in Friday afternoon, according to the Winstons. Van Melsen nodded, musing. And the circumstances surrounding his death? Same as the others, Brent stated. Puncture marks on the neck, drained of blood, not a drop spilled. Again, the P.I. nodded, deep in thought. Let's head on up, the DCI said. Van Melsen followed Brent up to the first floor, and into guest room two they strolled. Several forensic analysts were still working the scene. Feel free to take a look around, Brent suggested. The investigator nodded and proceeded to canvas the room, careful not to disturb the meticulous analysts. It was immediately apparent that there were no signs of a struggle. Whatever it was that had visited Mr. Powell in the night, had done so with stealth. 
The P.I. looked for further evidence of sooty footprints on the carpeted floor, but none were visible. He took note of the objects the analysts were in the process of dusting for prints, but felt intuitively that no prints belonging to the killer would be found. The one responsible for the salesman's death, he felt reasonably sure, was not of flesh and blood. This incorporeal predator was much more likely to be akin to what his old friend Norman Kane had vaguely described. It was furtive and wraith-like, ravenous and dogged. Turning to Brent, Van Melsen asked, "'Can you smell that?' Brent frowned, sniffing the air. "'What am I supposed to be smelling?' Sulfide. Again, Brent inhaled deeply. "'Marginally, perhaps,' he declared tentatively. But the DCI's appraisal meant very little to the P.I. He was already drawing parallels between the guest-room and that curious basement-room. The faint scent of sulphide, the sooty tracks that, according to Mr. Winston, had appeared on the stairs and in the corridors, only to later disappear inexplicably. "'What does it mean?' Brent asked, with regards to the odour. "'It's hard to say at this stage,' Van Melsen answered, withholding his racing thoughts. The P.I. was far from reaching a definitive conclusion, but he was certainly leaning in a very particular direction. In his mind, he was all but sure that whatever it was that had visited Mr. Powell in the night, as well as those unsuspecting victims out on the Knavesmire, had its origins in that very lodge, that, in all likelihood, it had its origins in that peculiar basement room. But he wouldn't make any announcements just yet. Van Melsen was a very thorough investigator, and thoroughness was always a prerequisite in cases such as this. "'I have some reading to do,' the P.I. stated, then added, almost as an afterthought, "'and I'd like to do it here.' Brent's eyebrows raised. "'You want to stay here?' "'Yes,' Van Melsen confirmed. "'Can that be arranged with the proprietors?' "'I suppose so,' Brent said. "'Excellent.' the P.I. blurted, and a subtle, subtle in the extreme, look of excitement washed over his face. "'I'll head back to the fleece to collect my things. Then I've an errand to run.' That errand involved a visit to his favourite bookshop on High Petergate, where he hoped to acquire a tome on the subject of occult symbolism. "'Leave it with me,' the D.C.I. said, eyeballing the sullen faces of Agatha and David Winston by the reception desk and with those words Van Melsen slipped out of the Knavesmire Lodge, leaving Brent and the scene of the latest feast behind, for the time being. 4. Following the collection of his belongings from his room at the Golden Fleece, the investigator made his way to the Grimoire Bookshop on High Petergate, and acquired, after a lengthy conversation with the shop's proprietor, the sought-after book, Mystical Marks, a comprehensive catalogue of occult symbols by the notorious astrologer Julian Terence Corrette. Returning to the Knavesmire Lodge, his thoughts clouded by muddled conjectures, he was met at the reception desk by Mrs. Winston, who had been informed of the investigator's intention to check in for an untold number of nights. Agatha, still visibly shaken by recent events, showed Van Melsen, for his insistence, to guest-room one, adjacent to the victim, Mr. Powell's room. The distinctive yellow barrier tape was in place over the door to guest-room two, 
beyond which several forensic analysts were still working the scene. "'What are you hoping to achieve here, Mr. Molson?' Mrs. Winston asked as she unlocked the door to guest room one. "'I suppose you could say,' the investigator began, "'that I'm hoping to gain some insight into the nature of our killer.' Agatha nodded, not exactly listening, simply concerned with voicing her opinion on the subject. "'Well, I hope you know what you're doing,' she continued. "'We can't afford to keep our doors closed indefinitely.' It was Van Melsen's turn to nod, before following Mrs. Winston into the room. Like the late Mr. Powell's room, guest room one overlooked the rear courtyard, a sizable space befitting the lodge, host to a number of green statues, a disused water fountain, and several anemic silver birch trees. The room consisted of a luxurious sleigh-bed, a tall wardrobe with a mirror inset, a writing-desk, and an adjoining bathroom, complete with a copper roll-top bath. "'Make yourself at home,' Mrs. Winston invited. "'Thank you,' Van Melsen returned, attempting a smile. Agatha retreated from the room, leaving the P.I. to his musings. Putting his luggage aside, he withdrew the attractive hardcover copy of Mystical Marks from the brown paper bag into which it had been carefully placed, and positioned himself at the writing-desk by the window. Leafing through the book's glossy pages, Van Melsen quickly found what he was looking for—an entry addressing the very symbol he'd glimpsed on the door in the basement. The entry was titled, The Globe of Detention, below which was a depiction of the emblem in question—three vertical lines, just like the Roman numeral three, enclosed in a triple-lined circle. The brief entry, limited to the verso of page fifty-seven, said the following on the subject of the symbol. First glimpsed on the doors of certain remote castles throughout central Bulgaria, it has been suggested that the primary purpose of the globe of detention was, in centuries past, to imprison vampiric entities, namely tablet, or shadow vampires. The Roman numeral, three, together with the triple-lined circle, indicates the number of entities confined to the space beyond the threshold. Whether or not the globe of detention was, and is, effective in its capacity to contain tablet, remains a matter of conjecture. Further research on the subject is required. Van Melsen absorbed what he had read, and took a moment to digest it. Could it be that, decades, perhaps centuries earlier, a band of bloodthirsty creatures were sentenced to an indefinite stay in that dreary basement room below? If so— what might the consequences of breaching the globe of detention be? A picture was forming in the investigator's mind, a scenario based in part on the words of his old friend Norman Cain, who had said, Beware the slain anthropophagus, for it will inevitably return. Had the prisoners of the room below been cannibals of some sort, the so-called tablet? It was with such thoughts in mind that Van Melsen climbed to his feet, and approached the telephone by the bed. "'Cain's Rubuks?' came the dulcet tones of the investigator's Lancastrian friend through the earpiece. "'Norman, it's Peter.' "'How fortuitous! I was about to call you.' "'You'd have missed me. I've relocated.' "'Oh? Where are you?' "'There's been another murder. Happened at a guesthouse called the Knavesmire Lodge.' "'Then you're staying there now, I assume?' "'Correct.' "'Well—' I've uncovered a thing or two, Norman announced. I were calling to say that I'm probably going to have to join you. 
Now that is fortuitous, Van Melsen said. The two men tittered. Although anybody listening to the conversation on either side might have dismissed the sound as nothing more than the clearing of a throat. The pair rarely laughed. Their characters were rooted in the cold reality of existence. Wax'll take care of things here, Norman continued. I'll be on the first train tomorrow morning. How do I find you? To which question Van Melsen proceeded to provide directions from York train station, and, following the phone call, approached Mrs. Winston regarding the availability of an additional guest room. It had been many years since the P.I. and Kane had worked on a case together. Van Melsen was looking forward to spending some quality time with his oldest friend. While still in the company of Mrs. Winston, he took the opportunity to inquire about the mysterious space downstairs. "'What can you tell me about that room in the basement? The one accessed via the second door on the left? The one with the symbol on the door?' Agatha frowned. "'Symbol?' she quizzed. At this juncture, David Winston's balding pate emerged from the unseen depths behind the reception desk. "'Did you see a symbol on that door down there?' Agatha asked her short husband. "'Don't think so,' he said, shrugging his shoulders. Eyeballing the investigator again, Mrs. Winston repeated, "'Symbol?' "'It's not important,' Van Melsen assured her, adding, "'I'm just curious to know. Was that door ajar when you acquired the lodge?' Mrs. Winston let out a sizable puff of air, saying, "'Ajar? It was locked, locked up tight. David practically dislocated his shoulder trying to barge it open.' To which Mr. Winston nodded, rubbing his right shoulder. "'There wasn't a key, then?' "'My husband would have hardly been likely to shoulder-barge it if there'd been a key now, would he?' she said, grinning wryly. "'I mean to say, a key never surfaced?' "'No.' Agatha answered shortly. But you did manage to open it. Yes. This, much to Van Melsen's relief, from David, followed by Crowbar. Right, Van Melsen acknowledged, recalling the poor condition of the door in the vicinity of the latch. You can imagine our disappointment, Mrs. Winston continued, when we finally managed to open that door and found nothing whatsoever waiting for us on the other side. It was completely empty? the investigator queried. "'Just a floor full of soot and a window full of grime,' she said. "'You can see why the renovation of the rooms down there are still on our to-do list.' DCI Brent strolled into the reception area, having returned to the crime scene to check in with the analyst still working it upstairs. "'Excuse me,' Van Melsen said to the Winstons, and moved to intercept Brent. "'Inspector,' he began, "'I have a friend en route. He has some information for me that I believe will be pertinent to the case. So pertinent that he has to join you physically? The DCI questioned. We have a system, Van Melsen responded. The Winstons are happy to accommodate him in room three. Well, that's fine with me, Peter. Just keep me in the loop, OK? Absolutely. Brent strolled away. In need of fresh air, the investigator made his way through the lodge into the courtyard he'd glimpsed through the window of his room. He lit a cigarette. The possibilities were accumulating in Van Melsen's mind. Though he'd read extensively on the subject of vampires and similar creatures known to exhibit vampiric traits, he hadn't ever come up against one, or, in this case, as the globe of detention on the basement door suggested, three of them, a trinity. 
And now three murders had been committed. Did that indicate that all three tablet had now fed? It was all guesswork. He couldn't be sure about anything. The nature of the killer, or killers, where they might be coming from, and how they might be stopped. He wandered back and forth throughout the spacious courtyard, filling his lungs with nicotine, admiring the craftsmanship of yesteryear, in the form of cherubs and horses, ever conscious of what may or may not be hiding amongst them. The P.I., having reflected on the nature of the thing that ducked into the shadows of Lady Packett's yard the previous evening, was reasonably sure that whatever was responsible for the deaths of a student, a primary school teacher, and now an insurance salesman, was unlikely to be on the prowl in broad daylight. Regardless, he'd proceed with caution. Prior to retiring to guest-room one that evening, Van Melsen urged the Winstons not to leave each other's sight until daybreak. The proprietors, who had been permitted to stay on site in order to see to the investigators' needs, were, under the circumstances, more than happy to remain attached at the hip for the foreseeable future. The few remaining forensic analysts, having completed their initial investigation of the crime scene, departed the Knaves Mile Lodge at 7 p.m. The atmosphere within the walls of the old building thereafter was truly unsettling. Every creak was an advancing monster, every indistinct rumble a scheming shadow vampire. In his room on the first floor, Van Melsen once again adorned every conceivable point of ingress with allium chains, investing the entirety of his faith in the pungent garlands. His thoughts were scattered, his senses were dormant. Lacking the necessary insights to face whatever was waiting for him in the dark below, the P.I.'s only recourse was to sit tight, await the arrival of his friend, and pray that the death of Martin Joseph Powell had satiated the killer, or killers, for the time being. And there he remained, aided only by a coffee-maker and a seemingly inexhaustible supply of cigarettes, patiently awaiting the slumber that would, with a bit of luck, provide a shortcut to dawn. Van Melsen's oldest acquaintance, the steadfast bookshop owner Norman Kane, strolled up to the reception desk at the Knavesmire Lodge the following morning, a little after 10.30 a.m. A quick word with Agatha Winston saw the man with the plastic limbs escorted to guest room three on the first floor, directly opposite the investigators' quarters. Sensing the arrival of his friend, Van Melsen, who, having awoken at first light, had spent the morning exploring the frozen swathes of grass comprising the Knavesmire, returned to the lodge, and joined Kane in guest-room three. Immediately, and without the exchange of pleasantries, as was their custom, Kane plucked a well-kept, blank-covered paperback from a carry-case, and thrust it into the waiting hands of the investigator. "'Page forty-two, the Lancastrian said. Van Melsen flicked to the page in question, and read aloud, "'The Case of the Knavesmire Vampires.' The investigator looked up at his friend, who simply nodded, and said, "'Read on.' And what he read there was very revealing. According to the book, the case of the Knavesmire vampires had taken place at that very lodge in 1899, and involved a strange trio of unknown origin, who had allegedly been responsible for a number of deaths throughout York's South Bank and Nunthorpe regions. 
Following a fruitless investigation on behalf of the police at the time, a specialist had been called in to deal with the situation. The person in question, whose name was never mentioned, was much like Van Melsen himself, a figure who developed a reputation as something of a supernatural sleuth. This individual had determined that the trio responsible for the deaths were operating beyond the means of physical apprehension, and would necessarily have to be contained rather than exterminated. "'Who's the author of this book, Norman?' the investigator asked, noting only the single word cloaked on the book's spine. "'A little-known researcher called Dick Sellers,' came the broad tones of his friend. "'It's essentially a collection of accounts he gathered over the course of his forty-year career.' "'Sellers, eh?' "'You know the name?' "'Before my time, but known to me, yes.' The investigator paused, taking a moment to leaf through the thin pages of the book. "'Ah, all the cases in here relating to vampires and such?' "'Yeah,' Kane confirmed. "'To Blight, specifically.' Van Melsen's eyebrows shot up. "'It's funny. Just yesterday I found mention of the very same in Corette's mystical marks.' Kane's eyebrows shot up. "'You found symbols?' he asked excitedly. "'I'll get to that,' the investigator said, curbing his friend's enthusiasm. "'How does one define tablette, precisely?' he continued. "'The knaves my article suggests that the murderous trio were quite corporeal, if you catch my meaning.' Kane sighed, raised a plastic fist to his chin, and stared off into space momentarily. Van Melsen knew the routine— his friend had done his research, and was preparing to impart a sizable nugget of information. The investigator took it as an opportunity to light a cigarette. "'Beware the slain anthropophagus, for it will inevitably return,' Kane began. "'Do you remember me quoting that?' Van Melsen nodded. "'Though I've been unable to locate the source of that quote,' Kane admitted, "'it's curious that the creatures in the case of the Nasemeyer vampires are described as anthropophagus.' Cannibals, though not in the sense you might be familiar with, Peter. The term cannibal hardly seems appropriate. Tablet, or shadow vampires, are incorporeal entities, capable of entrenching themselves in living hosts. They roam the surface of the earth, looking for human beings to possess. He leaned forward, adding, If these things took a liking to us, Peter, we'd be instantly transformed into blood-sucking monsters. Kane paused, motioning to his old friend for a cigarette. Van Melsen lit one, and placed it carefully between the firm digits of Kane's right appendage. "'The trouble is,' Kane continued between his first few puffs, "'once those things are in there, you can't get them out. You can kill the host, but that just drives the tablet onto other hosts. Hence, it will inevitably return. In the case of the Knavesmire vampires, it seems that our mysterious sleuth opted to imprison the creatures instead. In the basement, Van Melsen supplied. There's a door down there with a symbol on it. The globe of detention. I know the one, Kane acknowledged, nodding. Though instance forced that door open, Van Melsen continued. They broke the seal. Blimey, the Lancastrian muttered, puffing on his cigarette. But there were no remains in there, Norman. No bones, I mean. Ashes? Kane surprised him by asking. Van Melsen hesitated before proffering, Soot! Mounds of soot! Then he gawped at his friend, silently groping for further elaboration. 
Sunlight, my friend, Kane answered. What's the room's orientation? The investigator mused for a moment, then blurted, It's south-facing. There you have it. Remember what it says in the book there. The killers operated after dark. And our mysterious sleuth knew what they were. What would happen if they were exposed to direct sunlight? I believe so, yeah, Kane affirmed. But as we've already deduced, the specialist understood that annihilation by sunlight would only take care of the corporeal elements, the bodies possessed by the tablet. The purpose of the symbol etched into the door was to contain the tablet following their liberation. Van Elsen toked deeply on his cigarette, then absently puffed rings of smoke into the air. If that's the case, he said slowly, then the only pertinent question to ask is, why are these things now only feeding as opposed to possessing? That I don't know, Kane declared. Perhaps they're on the lookout for specific hosts. Van Melsen, bewildered, said, We need to obliterate these things, Norman. Containment is no longer an option. Then we might start with this, Kane suggested, and proceeded to untuck another curious-looking volume from the carry-case beside him. Where on earth did you acquire that? Van Melsen instantly queried, a look of disbelief spoiling his otherwise stern and unchanging features. The book held in the plastic hands of his oldest acquaintance was a heavy-looking mahogany-brown edition of a tome known to the investigator as Cycle, a work by the late nineteenth-century, early twentieth-century author and paranormal investigator Roger Arkwright, a man who, following many decades of research in the presence of several eminent gumshoes of the time, chronicled a series of instructions on the very curious premise of interdimensional banishment. "'Cook!' Kane stated simply, referencing the pair's mutual contact, Gary Cook, the proprietor of Cook's Books in Wigtown, Scotland. "'He quoted a passage from it in the November-December edition of Mysteries of the Mind. Seconds later I was on the blower begging him for a loaner.' "'Blimey!' Van Melsen mumbled, unable to take his eyes off the book. "'Banishment?' he added slowly. "'It might come to that,' Kane said, and passed the book to Van Melsen. "'Turn to page forty-nine.' Flicking to the page in question, the investigator's gaze fell upon an intriguing illustration, that of a seemingly empty room, with heaps of dark, sooty material covering the floor and clinging to the walls. Of a special interest to Van Melsen, though, was what he saw portrayed on the rear wall of the room, three distinct outlines in the shape of men, appearing in the form of shadows cast by invisible figures in the foreground, black figures hunched together, forming, collectively, the shape of a large talon. In his mind's eye, Van Melsen revisited the murky basement room, the dark, empty space with the mounds of soot upon the floor. He was all but certain he'd glimpsed unusual shapes on the north wall. Shadows cast by invisible beings in the semi-darkness? Or were those nebulous outlines the result of the direct sunlight that had once acted upon photosensitive beings, their silhouettes etched into the barren walls indefinitely? Under the illustration was a caption. Van Melsen, recognizing what was written there, read it aloud. Swator's Claw. So that's how you pronounce it, Kane uttered. What does it refer to? Van Melsen, 
still clutching the remnants of a cigarette, use the embers to ignite another one. We've got work to do, the investigator announced, dismissing his friend's question for the nonce. Five. The audacious duo, Peter Van Melsen and Norman Kane, set about preparations for what they had playfully termed a stakeout. The idea was to follow a series of instructions identified as a potentially plausible means of locating and subsequently banishing the entities the pair had come to believe were in their midst. Throughout, Van Melsen remained mute on the subject of the mysterious claw he'd observed in Arkwright's book, Cycle, and Kane knew not to prod his friend prematurely. The two had an unspoken agreement, harking back to the very first time they met many moons earlier, a series of events that unfortunately culminated in the loss of the Lancastrian's appendages. It was understood that the investigator would address the matter in due course, when he was good and ready. The investigative pair managed to convince the Winstons to seek accommodation elsewhere for several nights, necessary on numerous counts, leaving them alone in the sizable property on the hunt for entities ostensibly vampiric in nature. The stakeout, as per Arkwright's book, was organized into three distinct stages. The design stage, which involved establishing a base of operations in a large room, namely the breakfast room in this case, the detection stage, which, as the name suggests, was concerned with the location and exposure of the hostile beings, and, lastly, the deportation stage, in which the would-be shadow vampires would be forced out of the present dimension and into some other plane of existence, which, according to Van Melsen, might well be a lot closer to home than either of them dare imagine. The late researcher, Arkwright, had apparently witnessed the success of the design-detection-deportation method on a number of occasions throughout the 1920s and 30s, prior to his demise in 1939. Footnotes accompanying an early trial of the method in 1911 suggested that Arkwright's peers had been perfecting the practice for decades. By 6.30 p.m., the pair had configured the breakfast room, a space some thirty feet squared, to their liking. Kane serving as director, Van Melsen the gopher. The room had been cleared of all objects—tables, chairs, etc.—and in their place, in the centre of the room, had been dragged a rather tatty but luxurious Afghan rug from the entrance hall. From various locations throughout the lodge, as delineated by Agatha and David Winston prior to their dusk departure, numerous candles and standard lamps had been positioned about the rug their sole purpose to illuminate a central point upon which the investigator and the Lancastrian were to lure their subjects. It was just prior to the commencement of the detection stage that Van Melsen decided it was high time to share his knowledge of the unsettling illustration depicted in the curious tome, Cycle. As always, the P.I. sat upon the Afghan began, lighting a cigarette and eyeballing his friend sitting opposite him. I thank you for your patience, Norman. Kane, an extremely tolerant man, simply nodded and took a sip of the now-cold hibiscus tea he had balanced atop a plastic mitt. Swator, Van Melsen continued, the bearer of that hideous claw noted in Arkwright's book is, 
According to my research into certain obscure Eastern European cults, an extra-dimensional being, what appears to our limited perception to be a trinity of tablet or shadow vampires, could very well be the clutching tendrils of Swator, a mere facet of that which exists beyond the boundaries of this three-dimensional construct. The investigator, suddenly conscious of the sound of his voice reverberating throughout the shadowy reaches of the open room, lowered his voice. I first came across the name during my time in the Tatras, just east of Zakopane, Poland. A villager related what he said was a common folk tale, involving an entity that was once said to feast upon the blood of hunters in the mountains. Those who strayed too far into the foothills alone would sometimes return pale and altered, thereafter turning on their family members, killing them brutally. The old man, Arthur was his name, said that these unfortunate individuals were the victims of Swator, Swator, according to the old man, being another word for seducer. It's starting to make some kind of sense, Cain interjected. If you hadn't brought Arkwright's book along, I might not have made the connection. Van Melsen, puffing on his cigarette, turned once again to page 49 of the heavy tome Cycle, and drew Cain's attention to the picture of the claw-shaped shadow cast onto the wall. What if, he continued, these things, these tablettes, are indeed mere projections of the being Swator's will, the will to penetrate into our dimension to control the minds of human beings and feast upon their lifeblood. That sure would explain how it was impossible to destroy the things in the way back when. And then another notion occurred to Cain. Does that mean that all instances of shadow vampires are the projections of Swator's will? Quite possibly, the investigator answered. How can one hope to estimate the number of incorporeal appendages this thing is capable of projecting at once? Against a threat of this magnitude, banishment might be the best we can hope for. Then what are we waiting for? Kane said boldly. Van Melsen, with the tips of his bony, calloused fingers, extinguished the cigarette, clutched the copy of Cycle, and climbed to his feet. Detection time, the P.I. announced confidently, gesturing in the direction of the basement. Leaving the standard lights shining and the candles burning by the afghan, the determined pair left the breakfast-room and descended into the gloom below. Reaching the second door on the left in the dank corridor, the investigator and the Lancastrian paused before it. Cain took a moment to study the symbol, which, according to Van Melsen, had faded somewhat since his previous visit that morning. What had been a subtle odour of hydrogen sulphide earlier was now rather noxious, resulting in a fair bit of wincing on the parts of both of them. Armed with a torch, and characteristically confident, Van Melsen pushed the door further ajar, and strolled on into the sooty space. Kane stepped in behind him, and followed the beam of light as the investigator shone it upon the murky wall surrounding them. As per his earlier hunch, he traced three distinct shapes with the torchlight, the familiar shadows of human beings, but these shadows were echoes, the forms of those who had once stood before them, burned into the cold stones over a hundred years before. Though their physical bodies had long since turned to ash, owing to the light from a scorching and indifferent star, 
the possessors of those forms had remained, the clutching tendrils of Swator, for a century confined to the room by a forgotten curse. And it was the forgetfulness, or negligence, of those who subsequently maintained the premises, that saw it slip into disrepair. And, with the passing of the last witness to the turn of the century confinement, the lodge was abandoned for over forty years, only to be acquired by those who had no knowledge of what had transpired there all those years past, those whose innocent renovation efforts were to unleash an evil the likes of which modern society had never dared contemplate. Sweetor's claw, Van Melsen muttered, observing the faded shapes on the wall, which, akin to the illustration in Arkwright's book, resembled so much a twisted, clasping hook, the two-dimensional representation of the hand of the seducer. It's here, Norman. It's essence. It's fingers. The tablet. It's sweetor, Norman. Somehow I can feel it. I don't know how or why, but it's almost as though it's calling to me. The P.I. paused, before adding, It must be banished before it can do any more damage. And it was at precisely that moment that Van Melsen's torch flickered and promptly flashed out. In the darkness surrounding them, the pair became acutely aware of additional presences. These presences were felt as one detects a gentle breeze atop a hill on a summer's day. Formless, questing appendages swirled, clutched, Kane fidgeted, mindful of the proximity of the whirling things about him. "'Be still,' Van Melsen whispered. "'I sense that it's attracted to fear in the main.' As the quiet moments passed, the eyes of both the investigator and the Lancastrian slowly began to adapt to the near darkness into which they had been plunged. A dim glow from the nearby Tadcaster Road spilled faint light into the room, and— Soon enough, the pair were able to make each other out in the empty space. But they saw other silhouettes, too, frolicking, amorphous figures, forming and dissolving, short and tall, wide and thin, contracting and stretching repeatedly, in an inexhaustible attempt to establish contact with the corporeal beings in their midst. "'We must retreat now,' came the decisive tones of Van Melsen, and— Without hesitation, the investigator began to withdraw in the direction of the door. Kane made it to the door first, at which point, per Van Melsen's command, he was instructed to flee in the direction of the breakfast-room. The Lancastrian did so, and was shortly followed by the P.I., who quickly joined his friend under the shelter of the standard-lamps and candles on the Afghan. Though Kane never voiced it aloud, and never would, he couldn't help but shake the idea that he and the investigator were much like a pair of children playing a game of Desert Island, in which the colourful Afghan rug represented a haven from the shark-infested waters denoted by the sizable swathe of parquet flooring beyond it. But there they were, two adults, stationed at a Georgian Grade Two listed building in the aftermath of a murder, sitting cross-legged on a multicoloured rug in the middle of an empty room. So absorbed was Cain by his analogy, that his oldest friend took him by surprise when he shushed him, and proceeded to open cycle to page ninety-nine, the page headed, 
deportation. It was difficult to make anything out in the gloom beyond the standard lamps and the candles, but Cain was sure that his senses had identified movement out there in the dark, and if the franticness with which his old friend was scanning page 99 was anything to go by, Van Melsen was aware of that movement, too. But when a familiar voice called out to them from the shadows, both Cain and Van Melsen were taken by surprise. "'Mr. Molson?' It was Agatha Winston, having returned for reasons unknown. "'Mrs. Winston?' Van Melsen called back to her. "'Get over here, right now!' The investigator spoke with such sternness and conviction that the proprietor immediately did as Van Melsen ordered, but with possibly a little less urgency than he would have liked. "'Quickly!' he added. Agatha, approaching from the entrance to the breakfast-room, had a clear view of Van Melsen and Kane illuminated as they were by the umpteen light surrounding them, but the pair, blinded by the very same light sources, could only listen when Mrs. Winston gasped shortly, and was dragged to the hard floor by the disembodied fingers of the extra-dimensional entity, Swator. "'Mrs. Winston?' Van Melsen yelled again. "'Mrs. Winston?' he repeated, but his frantic words were only received by the bare walls of the breakfast-room. A near silence followed, broken only by a distant, muted scuffling. "'Do you hear that, Peter?' Cain muttered. "'Yes,' the P.I. returned. "'Do you think she's putting up a fight?' But Van Melsen didn't respond. The two just listened then, as the scuffling sound ceased, and stillness reigned supreme. The investigator and the Lancastrian sat motionless for a lengthy, undetermined period of time, at the end of which footsteps were heard coming from the direction of the hall between the breakfast-room and the basement stairs. The footsteps drew nearer and nearer, until finally terminating at the entrance to the breakfast-room, the echo of which tickled the eardrums of the two men, nervously anticipating their arrival. "'Mr. Molson?' came the voice of Mrs. Winston once more though this time her tone was muted and stilted. Cain whispered, "'Is that Agatha?' In similarly hushed tones, Van Melsen answered, "'I don't know.' "'Mr. Molson?' Mrs. Winston's voice was flat, emotionless. "'What do we do?' Cain continued quietly, his on-the-job inexperience evident in his quavering voice. "'Don't move a muscle,' Van Melsen instructed. "'Just sit tight.' Mr. Molson? Again, Mrs. Winston called to the pair from the edge of the room. The intrepid duo remained steadfastly motionless. Van Melsen returned his attention to the open book in front of him. As was typical in books of an occult nature, Arkwright had provided a series of phrases transcribed phonetically from the various banishments he'd witnessed over the years. Under his breath, the investigator began to recite the words as written there, pronouncing them to the best of his ability. Much like a priest conducting an exorcism, it was important to deliver the incantation with the utmost conviction. To waver in the presence of that which one was attempting to banish was, in essence, to yield to it. So over and over again he recited the jumble of letters there before him sweat appearing on his wrinkled brow as the heat from the dozen or so standard lights and candles bore down on him. 
Cain, who had unwittingly become a hapless spectator, was terribly aware of the presence by the entrance to the breakfast-room. Agatha had ceased calling, and instead had begun to edge towards the Afghan rug in the centre of the room. At least, Cain thought she was edging towards them. This is evidenced by the increasingly noxious scent of hydrogen sulphide permeating the air. And then it was clear that the form of Mrs. Winston was approaching, for just beyond the blinding glare of the standard lights, both Kane and Van Melsen, who now too was drawn to the glamour, saw the general outline of something terrible, a figure that was both female, recognisable as the proprietor of the Knavesmire Lodge, and also the dreadful amalgam of three shapeless tendrils, the trinity come together as one to fuse with an innocent human being, not to feed upon her blood like they had the others, but to take possession of her, to become the most complete representation of Swator living witnesses had ever seen. Agatha come Swator moved closer and closer to the men upon their island rug, and the nearer she came, the more horrifying were the details revealed to them. From the top of her head and the backs of her arms protruded dark, tentacle-like shadows, contracting and lengthening over and over again, feeling the air about them. The woman's face was all but gone, only the mouth and eye sockets remained, shadowy hollows in all three instances, a void for each of the elements comprising the trinity. Her delicate legs carried her forward much as they always had, though now with a singular intent of attaining Swator's goal, to consume the flesh and blood of Peter Van Melsen, and Norman Kane. Coming within a couple of feet of the Afghan rug, Van Melsen turned to his oldest friend and yelled, Now, Norman! As per the instructions detailed in Arkwright's cycle, the pair jumped to their feet and leaped backwards, Van Melsen crying at the top of his voice the incantation he'd hastily rehearsed there on the rug. Mutto Crestiendo! Mutto San! Mutto Dusto Prentiendo Man! Divinen supierto corpul in ten, mutto crestiendo, mutto am one, bestio fundable, mutto en san. Like a spider sucked into a vacuum, the creature once known to the world as Agatha Winston was drawn into the centre of the room, there illuminated by the standard lamps and candles. The monstrous thing let out a deafening cry as its strange feet came into contact with the Afghan a veritable bed of coals. Van Melsen, assaulted though he was by the pervasive cries of torment, repeated the incantation. Mutto crestiendo, mutto san, mutto dusto prentiendo man, divinen supierto corpul in ten, mutto crestiendo, mutto am one, bestio fundaval, mutto en san. The pair watched in horror, as the tentacle-like shadows infesting Mrs. Winston were extracted from her body like thorns from flesh. About her they whirled maniacally, screeching frantically, the inexorable gravity of the Afghan confining them to the centre of the room. Over and over again Van Melsen yelled the incantation, and throughout the swirling shapes withered and withered, their cries losing their potency, until finally— in what was little more than the blink of an eye, the clutching tendrils of Swator, the bothersome Tablettel, 
shadow vampires vanished into thin air. The motionless body of Agatha Winston slumped to the ground. Van Melsen was immediately at her side, and was overjoyed to discover that the proprietor of the Knaves Mile Lodge was still breathing. Norman, he called to his oldest friend, she's alive. It was several days later that Peter Van Melsen, enjoying the peace and tranquillity of his quiet abode in Rosedale, contemplated the nature of the banishment he and Norman Kane had ostensibly fulfilled. Sweetor, he mumbled under his breath, where are you now? Throughout the ordeal at the Knaves Mile Lodge, the P.I. had experienced an unaccountable familiarity in relation to the presence that lingered there in the shadowy basement, and like those gloomy subterranean rooms, Van Melsen too had murky depths, repressed memories whose heavily vaulted doors rattled with every mention of that banished entity. The immutable voice of the seducer remained in the back of his mind, whispering indistinctly. Where are you now? The P.I. repeated in a low voice, the billowing smoke of a cigarette obscuring him. In an effort to unburden himself of the ethereal presence, the investigator took a moment to call his oldest friend, who was also revelling in some much-needed respite at his home in Preston. It's all over, Norman, he informed his friend, having just that very afternoon received a visit from D.C.I. Brent, thanking him for his involvement in the case. Brent wanted me to pass his thanks on to you. Is it, though? Kane said doubtfully. Words are powerful things, Van Melsen retorted reassuringly. It isn't the first time words have saved the day, is it? Kane laughed, saying, You're right, there." The official line, according to Brent, Van Melsen continued, is that a wild animal was responsible for the deaths on the Knavesmire. Kane laughed again. <laughs> a wild animal? In York? Ridiculous, I know. But rather that than say the killer's relocated, or even more ridiculous, tell the truth, I'm not sure the world's quite ready for that. Chuckling, Kane asked, <laughs> How's Agatha doing? She's well, very well, actually. Doesn't remember a thing. And of course, the idea that a wild animal mauled a guest is much better for business than— Well, you know what I mean. Van Melsen lit another cigarette. There was something else I wanted to talk to you about, Norman. Okay. What is it? Earlier this year, I was up in Scotland on a case. I'd meant to pick your brains about this earlier, but the whole knaves my business followed in short order. To put it simply, can you tell me anything about uh, Jason Murphy? Four steps, Murphy, you mean? That's the one. I was deep in the forest, way up in Galloway, and I came across a very familiar etching in an old house. Beware the path less travelled. You know the verse, don't you? Aye. It's a dusty old thing, that memory, etc. What about the custodians? Ring a bell? Blimey, Peter. Yeah, Murphy, the custodians. What do you want to know? Perhaps we're due another meet-up already. Aye. <laughs> I'll tell you what, leave it with me. I'll have Wax dig some bits and pieces out for me. As always, thank you, old friend. Don't mention it. Let's arrange something in a week or so. And it was with thoughts of extra-dimensional beings, worlds beyond Earth, 
and the mystery of the custodians that Van Melsen drifted off to sleep that evening. And there, in the depths of slumber, he once again found himself atop that towering cliff in the subterranean cavern, where far below, above a giant lake, drifted a huge, slow-moving airship. <laughs>